Voyage. As she recounted last time, Marie, still trapped in the bathroom, had just broken her silence, letting her husband, Damien, know that his attempt to murder her had failed. She was still alive. There wasn't a single sound. He just left me there. And then about five minutes later, and he said, oh, right. I'll open the door. If you sign over every asset that you have, and you give me back the boat. And this will happen on Monday. You will give up your job at school, and you live on the boat, and you don't leave the boat ever again. And if you don't do as you're told, you will go through this again, or whatever I decide to do. So he kept talking to me, and he said, are you going to do this? I said, yes. He said, you have to promise me, Marie, because I'm not going to open the door. So I went through the process of repeating everything that he said, and I heard him take a little piece of wood off the door, and he opened the door. At this stage, I, my eyes were stinging. I had like, a, they were ringing in my head. I couldn't breathe. Um, I was choking all the time, um, coughing. And he didn't come to help me get out. I had to crawl out. I just had no energy left at all, no power, nothing. I, I really thought I would have been better off dead at that stage. So I'm gonna put myself together. Anyway, he stood over me and he had his arm, his hand around my neck. And he said, you have to repeat what you're going to do. And I said, I can't, I can't breathe. So I climbed onto the bed and then he, he kind of smothered over me and I got the words out and he walked away from me. And I laid there, I had to have laid there for 20 minutes or something. And I thought if I can stay here, I'm gonna die. So I got off the bed and I was stumbling everywhere. I was falling everywhere and I got out to the saloon, it wasn't a very big walk, boats aren't very big, you know what I mean? We're on a seven foot yacht. And uh, I get there and I said, I need something hot to drink, you know, something warm to drink because I'm, I'm, I'm gagging all the time. And uh, I, I put the jug on, he said, I'm not doing anything for you. And I put, I moved, moved over to the kitchen, the galley, and I put the, kettle on and he's just sitting there and I'm, I'm holding myself up and I went to sit on the lounge and as I stood up again he grabbed hold of me and he said to me tell me you love me tell me you still love me and he grabbed my arms and pulled them around his back, you know, holding me against him, and tried to kiss me. Denial is incredibly powerful. And I, I was, I was repulsed. I, I just couldn't think straight. I just couldn't do anything. Anyway, 
he let me go and I made the tea. And he was sitting on the settee and his head's down. And I thought, I've got to creep up the stairs and get some fresh air because the boat just stunk of this acid that I had just gone through. Anyway, he saw that I was going upstairs and screaming at me. And I thought if I could get out and somebody saw it, they might hear it, you know, all the screaming that was going on. Anyway, I'm sitting on the, just outside the cockpit um, in, in the daylight, because it's, it's only about 10 o'clock in the morning now. And I, I was there trying to fathom how the hell am I going to get off this boat without being killed? There was no, if I would have dived into the water and swam to another boat, or one, I wouldn't have had the energy, the breathing capacity, and he just would have got in and pretend to save me and just held me under. This wasn't happening in an apartment building in the middle of a city. It was happening on the water. So I'm sitting there and he, he came up and he sat beside me. And I said to him, Denise is going to be really angry. We are supposed to be at Denise's place today for lunch. Uh, my full name is Denise Hannett and I know Marie very well. Um, I first met her when she came to Vanuatu at the end of 2008 and I spent almost every day with her, sometime during the day or every second day um, with her. Uh, we worked together. Uh, she didn't come here to work with me but she was very helpful and when I needed a teacher, needed somebody to help me in the office, Marie being the um, energetic, kind, caring person she is, she offered to come and help me out. And uh, even though she only came for a couple of what was supposed to be about a week or two, she stayed for a year, um, which was wonderful for, for me. So yes, I knew her very, very well and both of them. I, I met him and I spent quite a lot of time on the boat um, with them or having uh, dinner or socializing from time to time. My impressions of him was that he was uh, quite a distant person, a bit, little bit reclusive. I thought some of his behavior was strange. I didn't walk to him, but you know, I socialized with him as one of a group. He was quite distant as a person. He did out, didn't appear to have much empathy, and he didn't, I mean, he and Marie had been married only for four or five years. Therefore, it was a new marriage. I would have expected him to have shown a lot more care about her, a lot more closeness. She would sit at one end of the table. If he could sit at the other end, that was probably where he'd sit. That kind of thing. Like other women we spoke to in making this podcast, Denise noted that Damien behaved differently and was received differently by men. I can understand that. I think he was a, a, a man's man as such. And I say that because further down the track, a few months later, when uh, some other people came in, new people came to town on a boat, that's where he'd spend his evenings, uh, late afternoons, with this other man having what I called happy hour. But when he had to come and pick up Marie from work, he probably wouldn't turn up till seven o'clock. And he should have been there maybe 3.30 to four to pick her up. 
Um, yeah, I think he did chat away to men much more easily than women. I think there was um, a lot of arguments going on. Um, they had started a business where he was doing work on boots because that's what he was a boot builder. Um, and he had built the back part of their boat. And I felt that it was the boat that he was very interested in. It was not a pleasant relationship from what I could hear and see. Then, of course, it all just happened. And he, uh, he, he attempted to kill her. And it was only that she was to meet me. It was a, a, a business lunch and, and I knew she would be there. And if she wasn't, I would have gone across on my dinghy to the boat. Back on the boat, Marie saw her opening and took it, using the planned lunch date with Denise. You'll have to get my phone and I'll have to ring her and tell her we can't make lunch. So he goes and gets my phone and I go to open my phone and there's nothing. And I thought, oh, I must have forgot to charge it. I said to him, can you get my international phone um, and I'll ring Denise on that one. So my international phone comes up. It's in the same state. Then I realised what he'd done. He had taken the SIM cards out. So I said to him, you have to give me the SIM cards so I can get it, the phone to him. So the two SIM cards came up. I put the SIM cards in. I rang Denise. I said, hello, Denise, it's Marie. I said, Denise, and I started coughing. And she said, are you all right? I said, I can't make lunch today. She said, what's wrong? I said, I can't make lunch today, Denise, because uh, Damon has got things he's got to do. And she got very angry at me. And she said, but you promised that you would have this stuff this framing for the school ready. I said, I'm so sorry, Denise, it's out of my control. And she said, what about if I meet you at Chantilly's and you, we sort something out? And I saw this, because he's sitting there listening. He's saying to me, no. And I said, look, I'll get Damon to get the dinghy and I will meet you at Chantilly's. So I go and get my handbag I changed my clothes because even my clothes now, I can tell you I had a, um, a pink t-shirt and a pair of navy, uh, like three-quarter pants on. And uh, you could already see it, that the acid was burning through them, right? I put on a pair of clothes and I left. He and I never said a word. This trip took about 10 minutes to get to where I had to go. And he said, when you finish sorting out what you've got to do with Denise, call me and I'll collect you. This part of Marie's account brings up questions about the limits of control. Did Damien really think Marie would go back to him? Or did he suspect this might be the last time they'd see each other and allow her to leave anyway? I get out of the boat, go down the gangway. I ring Denise back and I said, are you on your way? She said, what is wrong? I said, he's just tried to murder me. And I heard her scream. I said, I need help. 
and I have never seen the man since. Yes, I got one phone call that I was surprised to get because we were supposed to meet. It was very important. So I reacted in a certain way, well, you know, why can't you come? Um, this is really important. We were doing uh, things for an exhibition and I knew she wouldn't let me down. She's a very reliable person. So I don't know, I suppose in my mind, I probably thought that's very, very strange. And then I got the next phone call and that was to come, please come, come, I'm here. And it was almost you know, unbelievable what was happening. So I went straight down to Chantilly's. We got into a corner in this little cafe and we kind of devised a plan of what I had to do and who I had to contact. Because this is Sunday morning, like lawyers aren't available. And it was also a public holiday. So the police were all on the skeleton staff. So Denise knew one of the lawyers um, and uh, phoned and he recognized her name so he took the call so I was very lucky and he gave me a set of instructions of what I had to do and first thing he asked was do I need a hospital but it was very physical she was bruised she was coughing she was bleeding from the nose she had been squashed between doors uh, I think he'd used some sort of chemicals speaking of those chemicals there was a receipt with Damien's signature that we reviewed, showing his purchase of three items, listed as caustic soda, H-acid, and drain clean. The receipt was recovered by the Vanuatu police. More on that later. Though I was battered and bruised, I, there was no external bleeding. Everything was internal, right? So I said I'd be all right until the Monday. So Denise took me home and we got a, um, somebody that came in and helped me, um, made sure I was fine. And uh, the doctor um, also had a telephone conversation with me, telling me what I had to go and get done and all of that sort of stuff. So that was all right. So on the Monday morning, um, I had to go and see the lawyer. First thing, he called the police in. He, he didn't want the general police force to be looking after the case. He wanted a detective and uh, he brought this detective in. Uh, and this guy was great, excellent. And I, and of course you can imagine, I'm sitting in a lawyer's office, I don't know, and a detective. And the, and the questioning was horrific. Um, uh, they asked me, did he have any marks on him? I went, no, I, he's a big guy, huge guy. And uh, I said, no, there's no marks on him at all. I said, um, the boat's still there, but I didn't know what condition the boat was left in um, after I left. Um, they I then had to go to the police station, of course. I had to go through questioning. I had to make statements. And they tried to contact Damon. Uh, of course, Damon was still in Port Vila at the time, but he was already packing up the boat and moving. The police could see this, they were keeping an eye on it. Um, and they, um, they, every time they went to go and see him, he wasn't there. This went on for a few days. Um, I w and of course now, after these few days, I start really getting very, very sick because my lungs are permanently scarred. 
And but what was happening was these nosebleeds because the the gas um, had ripped and torn and burnt my nose all the way down my throat. So everything was burning inside. My ears were aching and ringing. It was awful. Anyway, that afternoon I ended up at uh, at a at the doctors and at a hospital and uh, uh, being checked. And there was. They gave me steroids to try and help the healing process. And then the vomiting started because of the poison inside me, it couldn't get out. So that I had to have extra treatment for all of that. The emotional and physical stress Marie had been through manifested in her losing so much weight that she was below 50 kilos. That's less than 110 pounds for stateside listeners. The police still couldn't find Damon anywhere. Um, and so this went on for a few days and uh, for myself during those few days the police put me in isolation so that he couldn't find me anywhere um, and I was sent. Port Vila had, has two areas to it and they have the knee band section and then they have what they call the French quarters. I was put in a home that had security in a French quarter and I stayed there for probably about a week. Uh, the police checked on me every single day and every night, uh, came in to see if I was okay recording the health issues, all of that sort of stuff. Anyway, on the night of the 8th at midnight, I get a text message from Damon to say he had gone. He was on the midnight flight. The arrest warrant lists the date of the offense as the 1st of August. So what Marie's referring to here would be about a week later. All right. So I rang the police, but they couldn't do anything. It was pretty disturbing, actually, because then I, I now at midnight, I'm now back at the police station, now having to record and have this text message taken as evidence of him fleeing, knowing that he was actually wanted. It needed the police needed to talk to him about this. With that, I was back at the uh, lawyer's office. They now knew he had gone to New Zealand. He uh, wouldn't still take any calls. When I realized what he was doing, he went and got a boat qualification, which only took a, a day or two while he was in Auckland. And then immediately he was going back to his lover's place down in a place called Akaroa. That was all too easy to work out what was actually going on. So. I was able to give the police um, this lady's name, all right, and they started calling her. And I also wrote to a detective who had already, I had words with regarding Damon's problems, right? Um, and he, he just sort of said, sorry, the New Zealand Police Department can't help in any way, shape or form. Then, um, the police were talking to the New Zealand police and Damon did take a call but the lady he was with realized that this the severity that this guy was under so she organized for him to leave New Zealand all right so she organized through her son a ticket and a job in the med so he just left everything behind and away he went. 
Months later, that lady wrote to me and realised what she had done and was very apologetic. But in the meantime, when the Vanuatu police realised what he had done, they knew they had to lay charges against him without him being there. But they had all this evidence. We have documentation supporting this as well. An arrest warrant from the Vanuatu police for intentional assault, threats to kill, an intentional attempted homicide for Damien. A letter from the Vanuatu police to a travel agency seeking information about a ticket Damien got taking him from Port Villa in Vanuatu to Auckland. A press clipping from a Vanuatu newspaper about the story which knows the difficulty the Vanuatu police were likely to face in any international extradition of Damien. And by now, Ian Phillips he and his wife came over to stay with me after they'd found out what was happening because they were supposed to come for their honeymoon and we were taking them sailing. When I had to explain what happened, they came over and it was Ian, he was the one that I identified. He did like a mock experiment of what he think kind of happened and what um, chemicals were used on me. Here's Ian Phillips, remember? He's the boat expert who knew Damien and Marie. I, I married my second wife uh, a, few, a few weeks before. We were due to go to Vanuatu, where the boat was, at Port Vila, to sail it from Port Vila across to uh, New Caledonia. And I got a phone call from Marie to say, look, do you still want to come? He's just tried to kill me. And that was a very big surprise. So I, I spoke to my wife and we said, yeah, sure, look, look, we'll, we'll certainly still come because we, you know, to, for no other reason than to support Marie at that point. No idea what's happened, but um, let's, let's go and at least provide her with some support. We set about, listened to Marie's story uh, and then set about thinking about how would you accomplish this. Now, the interesting background to that was that turned up in my factory probably six months before and said that uh, as Marie was at that time working in a, a school in Port Vila, he turned up in my factory to ask uh, our chemist if there was some way he could do magical tricks for the children involving explosions, which the chemist wasn't able to be terribly helpful with that because we didn't know what was available there and of course there's the, the obvious issue of safety. So when we got there, Marie related what happened. I got to thinking about, well, what, how would you go about doing this? So went and spent some time in the, the hardware store and the, the plumbing supplies places and located the, some things which we thought might do what, what she, she described as having happened. And on the, on the hard area near the boat, we set up some experiments and successfully caused just that to happen with stuff we managed to buy at the at the plumbing supplies place. So, uh, I think she showed it to me and I recognised what was on it. But that, that that was in fact what we we we'd discovered. So it became fairly clear that that's probably how he'd went about it. But his wife, she was very concerned because still now, this is now, I don't know, nine days, ten days after the event. I'm still having massive nerves, fleets. I'm still vomiting. 
So I was in and out of the doctors all the time and she said to me, you will die here, Marie. They can't help you. You've got to go home. But I couldn't go home because the police, I had to get signed off paperwork from the Supreme Courts. And that took a little while because the Supreme Courts were asking for evidence and from the police department. And this was quite a, um, an ordeal just so I could get home. And I left there in the December. When I left, due to all this illness that I had, I, I weighed under 50 kilos. I was skeletal. So Ian's wife was working with me all the time, setting up what was going to happen for me for when I got home. I first went home and saw my mum and dad to let them know I was going to live, but I was having these horrific, horrific nightmares. It was awful. It was like he was in the room with me every night and was trying a new way to get to me. And they put me back under medication again, not, not medication where I was locked out, but to calm me down so I could start getting through this. And this is when um, the psychologist was working with me and I was being treated like a Vietnam vet. But in the meantime, every week when I was home and trying to get well, I had the Vanuatu police. I had the lawyers, I had the courts, I had a, a judge, all wanting to talk, work with me and try and get stuff done. I was able to get a job, which I was thrilled about. And so the job actually was very therapeutic for me. Like I was back in society, but I was doing stuff that I knew I could do. Um, so yeah, that kind of went on for there for quite some time. For most of 10 years, I've actually known where Damon is, all right? I've had people that have had trackers. I knew what country he was in. Um, and the Vanuatu police had all this in detail, but they couldn't do anything because Vanuatu didn't have Interpol. So it was only if he was ever, if Damon was ever going to go back into Vanuatu, was he ever going to be arrested? which I think is the craziest laws that I've actually had to live with in my entire life. It took about five or six years that I actually was able to settle down and not be fearful that he was gonna come back and hurt me. How do you work with a country such as New Zealand and Australia that help a country like Vanuatu? And the three of them won't talk together. And this, in my case, this guy has passports in both of those countries, New Zealand and Australia or did. And that crime happens in Vanuatu. I do not understand the legal system and sometimes I think it's grossly, grossly unfair. That's right. Damien is still very much out there. At the end of the day, it's very unlikely Damien will ever face any punishment for his crime, unless he voluntarily decides to return to Vanuatu and turn himself in. Committing the crime in a small country without massive police resources or strong extradition capabilities means that Damien, quite simply, got away with it. He's not hiding, he is active on social media, and he can certainly claim his innocence, which he's done in communications to Marie and others. What he left behind was a terribly wounded Marie, physically, emotionally, and financially. As for the boat, the El Karim. Um, the boat stayed in, in Vanuatu, in Port Vila, it, um, oh God, 
he had wired the boat up while I was off the boat, while I was going through all of this stuff. He had wired the boat up that when the engine was going to be put on, the batteries would explode and blow a hole in the boat. Now, this came about when they brought the uh, engineers in to make sure that there was nothing there that was going to harm me. There were two engineers. They turned the engine on. The guy who was in the saloon screamed out, turn it off, turn it off, turn it off now. We're going to be blown up. We turn, they turned the boat off, right? And they're ripping out the seats and there's all this smoke coming out of the battery. So he still wasn't happy that he had beat the hell out of me, gassed me. He was still having another go. Now that piece of evidence also was put to the courts because they could see what, and they took photos of what he had done. He had taken all the uh, um, acid out of the battery so that they explode. I don't know the technical term for it, but that's what was going to happen. And the engineers were so angry, so, so angry, because it could have been them, not me, because I wasn't allowed on. So then I, I had to go and stay other places until they went all over the boat, all over the boat. Um, yeah. So she was tied up at a, at a, at a jetty, a private jetty, uh, that the water police used to use in Vanuatu and there I stayed. So I was kind of uh, a little bit like New Zealand trip where I was tied up to a jetty um, uh, waiting for court cases but this was a bit different. I, I wasn't, I, I, I was allowed freedom because I was the victim not the perpetrator. So the people over there when they started realizing the police they were very kind to me, very kind. A couple of people came over and we took the boat out sailing, but I had to let the police know all the time where the boat was, everything, yeah. So after I was given the okay to go to work, I the boat came back to Australia, the boat got fixed up and I went, okay, I can live on the boat. That can be my home, you know. So I had it um, docked in Brisbane and uh, I, I had it, there were three men that used to help me with her if I had to move her. So I was quite, I was, uh, I was quite lucky because I was very safe then. Proving once again the sheer audacity Damien had, despite being wanted for Marie's attempted murder in Vanuatu, he was not deterred from trying to sue her once again in New Zealand. I had to relive all this all over again in 2014, just when I was getting stronger and um, this battle went on for six months and um, this was just yet another court battle that I had to win. I did win it because I hadn't done anything wrong. And the judges in New Zealand actually saw all the warrants for his arrest. They saw all the original paperwork from the, the other two court cases. And so he realised that I wasn't doing anything. So then he went, okay, I'm just, I just want a divorce. And I kept, okay, fine, great. So anyway, the court case goes through. I don't have to pay a cent. And Damon is told 
by the courts that he does not own the yacht. The yacht is always owned by me. That he does have an outstanding bill of $1.2 million that he should pay me. And that never again is he allowed to take me back to a court case again after all the times that he had taken me and lost. Now, there's a special name. It's not harassment, but it's a special word that the courts use that is wasting the judge's time, wasting the lawyer's time and all of that. I can't remember the exact word, but that's what they told him. He was never allowed to do it again. It's called vexatious litigation. So uh, the divorce just went through very quietly and was all done. So yeah, it was fine. And um, I haven't heard from him since. And I think that was the part that I needed that you can't take me back to court anymore. You just can't. So it was tough. I, it, that took me a few months to get over. It seemed to finally be over. Life went on for Marie. I then met my new partner and he's in the medical profession so he, he was wonderful to me because I had to explain everything to him as, as to why I, um, why I'm not the free loving person that I used to be. Even though I'm a happy person, I was a very different person in those days. Um, after going through an event like this, um, and I think most victims would say this, something in your life internally does change. And I know that that sounds a bit weird. I'm still afraid of the dark. I know that's a ridiculous thing to say. And if a man comes up and, and I don't know him and touches me, I, I, I go into a state of shock. That still happens today. It's still the anxiety that I live with. So I now have a job still in financial services and the irony of it all is the head office is in Christchurch, New Zealand. <laughs> so, <laughs> which I think is very funny. So here I have to go back to New Zealand to, for meetings and everything. But they, they're great people. Marie went into this relationship with Damien as a hopeless romantic, someone who believed in love and was willing to love past red flags in a potential partner. She's no longer that way. I think the hardest thing for if you are in a relationship and you see the red flags coming up, you can see behavior that's not right, you can see that there's lying starting. Most of it starts with lies because they've got to hide what they're doing from behind the scenes all the time. They're, they're big, huge red flags, which people in abusive relationships see no, but for some reason we still ignore them. And I've tried so hard to understand why we ignore them. Because they are the danger signs to say there's a chance that you're going to get hurt. Um, but we hope and believe that love is actually stronger than these red flags. And I don't believe that anymore. The red flags are there for a reason. They are telling you to get out. Get out now, because the pain's going to be great. Dead in the Water is a production of Voyage Media. The series is produced by Nat Mundell, Robert Mitas, Caitlin Brown, and Dan Benamore. Reported, lead produced, and written by Dan Benamore. Edited by Nick Messiti, Nick Shope, Jackson McLeanan, and Andres Coca. Original music by Darlis Gonzalez. Narrated by Tony Dalton. 
If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or anywhere you're listening. And subscribe now for future episodes.